Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, that's page 1168. <clears throat> Pretty soon it'll just open automatically there. Um, <clears throat> this morning, I'm going to read from verse, starting at verse 15, and going, I'm going to read down through verse 23, uh, but this morning we're just going to be looking more closely at verses 21 through 23. So, looking at the Word of God, Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. <clears throat> He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. <clears throat> the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, precious Lord. Thank you for this letter from jail that Paul wrote so many centuries ago and that your spirit inspired him to write. Lord, especially this section about the glories and the magnitude of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. <clears throat> Lord, as we come to this passage of scripture, would you help us Please help me as I try to preach. Help each of us as we listen. Lord, shape us, impact us, mold us by your word, I pray. Have your way with us, Lord God Almighty. Have your way with us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> as I was... As I've been preaching through this section in Colossians, I can't help but 
my mind keeps going back to the, the glory and the magnitude of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished. <clears throat> um, sometimes we hear it so many times, I think we be become sort of numb to it, sort of like the sunrise. <clears throat> Isn't it amazing that you can see the sunrise and it's so beautiful? And yet you say, oh, just another day, another day in paradise, as some of my friends used to say, and they would say it sort of sarcastically, like this is far from paradise. <clears throat> and we certainly live in a broken world, but just seeing the beauty around us, sometimes we can sort of become numb to it. And I think the same is true when we look at the Bible and we hear again about the glory of Christ. <clears throat> I don't know if there's any other part of Scripture than Colossians chapter 1 that so exalts the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and then in light of that, what he has done and what he has done for us as believers. <clears throat> I used to say, um, in a negative way, I, I, there's a lot of things I've changed, by the way. I used to make fun of people that needed counseling. That's terrible to do. I used to make fun of people when I was a younger man. And um, I don't do that anymore. I stopped a long time ago doing that. Uh, but I used to say, even from this pulpit, some people get bored with God. How could you ever get bored with God? <clears throat> you know what I realize? Sometimes I get bored with God. And I'm not saying that it's not a sin. I'm just saying, it's, I think that's common to us, to our, I think we, we all struggle at some time, sometimes with that. But I believe the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians was written so that God's people in Colossae would not be bored with Jesus Christ. In fact, I think that the, lure, the allurement of some sort of a mix between Judaism and paganism was pulling these Colossians away and Paul's writing to inflame their passions and their imaginations again about the glory of Christ. And so I'm praying for me and for you that the book of Colossians will do the same for us again, that the Lord will reignite the glory of the magnitude of what Christ has done, who he is and what he has done. Just, I just want to go back with you to verse 19. <clears throat> For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now Paul is writing, trying to combat a sort of return to Judaism where People would say if you observe certain feast days and you, you do certain things. Um, let me just go to, jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 16 real quick. So you, get, you can get what I'm talking about. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he's mentioning elements of Judaism. 
dietary laws, keeping feast days, keeping Sabbath days. <clears throat> and so I think part of what is in Paul's mind as he's writing in Colossians 1.19 is he's saying, think about Judaism, how the presence of God filled the tabernacle and, it, and the glory of God dwelt, <laughs> a, remained over the mercy seat. That was a pointer to Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. The tabernacle was a temporary pointer to the ultimate perfect person of Jesus Christ. So I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to say is, don't go back to the shadows. You've got the real McCoy you got the real deal in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. Go on from verse 19. God was pleased for all his fullness to live in Jesus Christ and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. <clears throat> now we looked at that a little bit last week, but notice the cosmic scale of Christ's reconciling work, Christ did not die on the cross just so that you could be saved. <clears throat> Christ died on the cross to reconcile all things in heaven on earth through the blood of his cross. He's going to set everything right. <clears throat> That's a, that's a grand scheme. That's a big stage. Now, thank God if he has revealed himself to you and you have been through faith in Christ, through repentance from sin and faith in Christ, you have been reconciled to him. Thank God for that. But I just want you to see verse 20 shows that it's bigger than just the individual salvation it's all of the universe is going to be set right. I think one of the best passages of this is, is found in Romans 8. I just want to read to you. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read to you some verses from Romans 8, beginning at verse 18 of that chapter. <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that, that's all going to happen when Jesus returns. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For what, 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I'll stop right there. <laughs> Man, that is, that is, uh, that's something to take into Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving this week. If, you know, when they go around the table, if, if you do this custom at your house, if you go around the table and say, what are you thankful for? You could just read that paragraph right there. <clears throat> you could just say, God is for me in Jesus Christ. Who could be against me? But I'm just reading that to try to capture a little bit of the magnitude of what Christ is accomplishing. All of creation is groaning right now, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons and daughters of God and Jesus is going to set the universe right. So, as we, as we come to this passage in Colossians today, realize this is really big. You know what's not big? What's not big are the kingdoms of this world. Russia, China, North Korea, the United States of America, those things are infinitely small in comparison to the day when Jesus comes back and sets the universe right and brings home his adopted sons and daughters. That's big. That's big. <clears throat> so I just want to help us to feel a little bit of the magnitude of this passage in Colossians, what Paul is trying to point at, the magnitude of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And so, again, I believe he's trying to stir up the affections of the Colossians to re recognize what treasure they have in Jesus Christ so that they won't be tempted to look elsewhere to some sort of a, a return to Judaism or some sort of a pagan worship of angels or going on, puffed up, going on and on about visions they've seen, <clears throat> um, but to hold fast to Christ. So, in the next few verses, verses 21 through 23, I think he gives us ways to try to measure the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. And the first one he gives is who we were before Christ in verse 21. Look at this. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled. 
So Paul is drawing attention to the Colossians, what they were before Christ, before they were born again and put their love and trust in Jesus. You were alienated, that is, separated from Christ. <clears throat> what alienates us from Christ? Our own sins. Our own sins. It's, it's not Christ's fault that we are alienated. We come into this world born into sin. We inherited a sinful nature from our forefather Adam, and you say, well, that's not fair. But let me just say this. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the perfect Adam. <clears throat> in Adam, we all fell into sin. And by the way, if you were there in the garden, sooner or later you would have too. So you're a sinner by, by the sin nature that we inherited from Adam, but you're also a sinner by choice, okay? But Jesus, our second Adam, if we trust in him, his righteousness counts for us. He is our representative, and so his death counts for us, and his resurrection counts for us. <clears throat> so before Christ comes, we were separated, alienated from Christ by our own sins. Our sins had cut us off from fellowship and friendship with God. And then it says, you were hostile in mind. <clears throat> See that? Hostile in mind. That is, we were not neutral. In our fallen state, we had a heart that was hostile toward God and at enmity against God. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile against God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not even able to. It is rejecting and hostile toward God. I just want to say this again, and I've said it before, but don't fall for the notion of unbiased reporting. Um, the news is crazy. The world is crazy, and so is the news. Uh, but there is no such thing as neutral unbiased opinions. In fact, there is no such thing as neutral in our minds toward God. We either love him or we are hostile to him. And the only way we're not hostile, and you say, wait, I don't, the unbeliever, we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, the unbeliever says, I don't have anything against God. You, know, you, you do your God thing, I'll do my other thing, my football thing, or whatever it might be. I don't have anything against God. Now, wait a minute. This is the one that gives you your next breath. This is the one that provides life and breath and all things to you. To be indifferent toward that God is a great crime. And to say in your heart, I don't have anything against you, but don't tell me how to run my life, is rebellion against your creator and the one who lets your heart beat again. You know, your heart beating again is not just a given. The Bible says we're hostile in our minds toward God's before Christ comes and changes us. 
on the mind is hostile against God. All philosophy, all scholarship and academia is either hostile against God or favorable and loving and affectionate toward God. In a, in a quest for epistemology, the, the, the quest for how we know what is, how we know what we know, how do we know anything? The mind is not neutral. The heart is not neutral. <clears throat> it was while we were enemies of God, it was while we were hostile in mind that Christ died for us. And then he goes on in verse 21, not only were we hostile in mind, we were actually doing evil deeds. We were actually acting out of that hostile mindset, that hostile mental attitude, and we were doing evil works acting out of our hostility toward God. You know, you can even do good evil. What I mean, I don't mean that, uh, listen to what I mean by that. You can do things that are good on one level, on a social level, but if you do it for your own pats on the back or for your own image, it's really dishonoring to God. And in that sense, it's a good thing can be a, an evil thing ultimately. The great point of all of this is not to denigrate mankind and their broken, fallen natures, but rather to magnify the extent of the rescuing, reconciling work of Christ. We are certainly undeserving, but oh, what a thing he has done for undeservers like Drew Woods. Oh, what a thing he has done. What has he done? He says it in verse 22. You were, who were once all these things, now he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has reconciled us. What does it mean? Reconciled us with God. We are right with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his sacrificial death, the payment for our sins, was made, and we are reconciled with God. We are not on probation, friends, to see whether we will be good enough to earn God's favor, His reconciling work. You know what probation is? When you get a new job, they usually give you 90 days and before you get benefits and you get officially taken on. Well, you're on probation. We'll see how you do. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We're not on probation to see how we measure up, to see if we're actually deserving, if we're worthy of Christ's sacrifice for us. No, no, no. We are reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. It is not, it is emphatically not what I have done. It is what Jesus has done for me that makes me reconciled with God, that makes me right with God. I am right with God as a freeloader. I get to glory on the coattails of somebody else. If I can touch the hem of his garment, if he'll have me, I'll be had. 
There's no hope for me apart from what he does for me. But what he has done for me is made me right with God through his sacrificial death on that cross. Oh, do we believe that? <laughs> we were talking in Sunday school. Do we really believe the love of God for us? Do we believe that we have been so massively loved that we are now right with God. And you know what the Bible calls us? Friends of God. Like that passage I read in Romans, if God's for me, who can be against me? <laughs> who is he who condemns? It was Christ Jesus who died rather than is raised again. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, what does that mean, more than conquerors? It means you're more than victorious through him who loved us. He has reconciled us to God. Psalm 56, verse 9, the psalmist says, This I know, that God is for me. Do you know that today? Do you know that God is for you? You might be going through all kinds of heartache, and I know some of you are. We are trying to lift you up in prayer. But if God is for you, you're going to be okay. Oh, no, no, no. You're going to be more than okay. The one who is setting the universe straight through the blood of the cross of his son is going to set you straight. He's going to take care of you all the way. <clears throat> How did, so again, these are ways, I believe what Paul is doing is he's describing who we were before Christ. That's, that's way number one to try to get at the magnitude of what Christ, who he is and what he's done for us. Number two, what actually has Christ accomplished for us? He's reconciled us to God. And now number three, how did Christ do this? He says it by his bodily death on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to be made a real man to take our place as a human Inasmuch as Jesus was God, he could not die, but inasmuch as he is man, he could. <clears throat> now Christ suffered many other things for sinners' sake, but it culminated in his sacrificial death on the cross. This is how he loved his chosen ones all the way to the end. He gave up his life in the agony of the cross, and by means of his death, he has reconciled us believers to God. And then the, the next way, the number four way that Paul I think, tries to get at this <clears throat> magnitude of Christ and what he's done for us is why he did it. He, he tells us why. Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you. This is why he did it. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you see, he's not just going to bring you to heaven. He's going to bring you there holy, blameless, and above reproach in the very presence of God. <clears throat> now, we, we talk about enjoying heaven. We talk about seeing our loved ones there that have gone before, and that's going to be sweet, yes. Streets of gold are going to be sweet, yes. Best coffee in the universe, yes. But, Seeing God, 
the one who loves us and gave himself for us. <laughs> but, but, but you, you know what? When, when I think of that, sometimes I feel fear and trembling in my heart because I know I'm a sinner and I know how unlovable I am. But this verse tells me Jesus died to reconcile us to God so that he's going to present us before him, before his presence someday, holy and blameless and above reproach. There will be no taint on us. Just like a bride, Ephesians 5 said, he gave himself for her that he might present her to himself spotless, without wrinkle or blemish, but that she should be holy. That's his bride, that's us. To be in the presence of God is glorious, but it's so much more glorious because we will be perfect and without any reproach. So these are ways he gives of trying to measure or at least get a glimpse of the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us. But then he says, he adds this, and I think it's added as a warning to the Colossians. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and in which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, the message I brought to you, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I've proclaimed throughout all creation, Don't shift from that. All of this is yours in Christ if you will continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What is the gospel? God, at great cost to himself, gave himself for me because I could not pay my debt. And he, out of love, paid my debt for me so I could be his forever. Through Jesus Christ. It's it's through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Don't turn to other things. Um, You must continue in the faith. Now, there's different ways you could read verse 23. Uh, This means that God's infallible work of saving grace in a believer's life works itself out by that believer persevering to the end. Jesus said, um, in latter times, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, there's there's a way you could read that and say, wow, Okay, Jesus made me, he gave me all this, and now from now on out, it's on me, baby. I've got to really toe the line. And I I just want to say, it's still on Jesus. Now you must, I, I, I don't want to take away human responsibility. You are responsible. You must continue in the faith, firm, Until the end, don't let your love grow cold. But you never will if it were not for the keeping power of God. 
He will keep those he calls and he justifies. Now you say, well, how does all that work, Drew? I don't know exactly how it works. I just know God is ultimate. His keeping power is ultimate. And as one preacher said years ago, for every one look, you look to yourself, give ten looks to Christ. Look away to the promises of Christ more. We have to evaluate our own life and be honest and say, am I persevering in the faith? But for every one look you give yourself, take ten looks at the promises of Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will do it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to do His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. For every one look to yourself, give ten looks to the promises of Christ. Because brothers and sisters, I'll tell you, you can, you can go on an inward-looking tailspin that leads in depression and that will lead to depression and despair. I'm not saying we don't be honest. We have to be honest with our lives. But it does not all hang on us to persevere. We will persevere because the Spirit of Christ is in us. Now, we must, but we will. If Christ is in us. And so this is not given by the Apostle Paul to load the Colossians with this sense of, oh, uncertainty. Oh, I guess it all hangs on me now. That is not what he meant. This does not mean salvation is, condi- is conditional or like the Roman Catholic Church teaches that justifying grace may be lost by the committing of mortal sins. However, it does mean that we must persevere in the faith to the end. Passages like this demolish the popular transactional notion of being a Christian. That is, the notion, all you got to do is say the sinner's prayer and you're good to go, regardless of how how you live your life. All I got to do is, in Mitchell, Indiana, back in the early 70s, make my way down the aisle. If I can just get enough courage to come down the aisle at the end of the service and shake Pastor Kirkman's hand, I am good to go. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, unless one is born again, he will not even see the kingdom of God. But if we are born of the Spirit, the Spirit produces stuff in our lives. And one of them is undying love to the unseen Christ. So this passage demolishes transactional Christianity, but it also points us to something to strive toward. What a thing to work toward. Is there a better destiny than to be standing before God wholly blameless and with above reproach? Oh. Let us strive to keep the faith without wavering or straying. Let's keep following hard after Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's not be shaken from our devotion and commitment to Him. 
Let's be steadfastly devoted to Jesus alone for our salvation. We live in crazy times. And there are all different kinds of versions of religion or spirituality that you can adopt. And I just want to appeal to you. Hold on to Jesus Christ. Hold on to the Jesus of this book. Be devoted to him. Ask God, ask God in prayer this Thanksgiving week, Lord, save me from being bored with the magnitude of what you've done for me in Jesus. Would you reignite in me the awe? awe? Lord, would you help me not to veer away from Christ into Judaism or paganism or angel, angelology, I mean, worship of angels or visions or weird stuff that's going to distract me from the sufficiency and the supremacy that's in Christ? Would you help me to stay on task. And you know what? He wants to answer that prayer more than you want to pray it. When we can pr we pray the scripture back to the Lord, I believe he is honored by that and I believe he loves to hear that. So that's my appeal to you. And you know this whole section, this whole first chapter, most of this whole first chapter that we've gone through so far is the theme is thankfulness. Paul said, I thank God every time I remember you. And I'm praying that you will be strengthened with his mighty power, that you'll have all the strength and endurance that you need with joy, always giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Oh, Thanksgiving week. If they're going around the table, you could say, I am thankful I have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Or you could just say, Jesus. <laughs> I remember years ago when we lived in Cement City. Back in the day, you have to you, you walk to the post office to get your mail because everybody had these little boxes. I guess some people still do that. Uh, now we have a mailbox by our, our driveway. But I remember going into the... the uh, post office one time, and there were some old regulars there at the, de the counter, and uh, <clears throat> somebody was in there from the exponent, I think it was from the exponent, some, somebody was in there asking people questions, it was Thanksgiving week, what are you thankful for? And they, they turned to me and said, what are you thankful for, Pastor Woods? And I said, I am thankful for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And one of the persons at the counter sort of mumbled something under his breath. And I, and I turned to that person and I said, Billy Bob. And it wasn't Billy. I, I just used, that's my generic name. Billy Bob, why? Why would you say that? We all need a Savior. What are you counting on to justify you before the presence of God someday? And I'll never forget the response. I'm counting on my four years of serving this country and all my years of serving this community to justify me before God. 
<coughs> what are you counting on? Friend, I pray that you would say, Christ alone. If he'll have me, I'll be had. In just a few moments, we get another, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, which is another way of stirring up our affections for him. It's a remembering of him and what he has done for us. Let's close our time in prayer right now. Precious Lord, words are cheap. But love is costly. Lord, please deliver me and my friends, my brothers and sisters, from just having words without love. Lord, would you help us in a fresh new way to see and to treasure the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ. And do a thousand wonderful things as a result of that, Lord, I pray. Lord, if there's anyone here <coughs> outside Christ, I just ask that you would have mercy on them. And persuade them of the truth and the glory and the beauty that is in Christ. I pray this in his 